millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, August 16th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, how elements of the Inflation Reduction Act will help ease some of the financial burden on Mississippians living with diabetes. Plus, we continue our comprehensive look at the state's welfare fraud scandal and how the current governor is connected to questionable spending. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Three hundred seventy-three thousand Mississippians are living with diabetes. Another eight hundred are at risk due to factors like family history. In fact, Mississippi has the highest rate of diabetes in the nation. Arena McLean is associate director at the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi and welcomes some provisions of the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. The bill contains language for making prescription drug prices more affordable, especially for those patients, and it sets a spending cap of $35 on insulin for seniors with Medicare. McLean speaks with our Kobe Vance on what the changes could mean for Mississippians. People with type 1 diabetes thankfully are living longer, so we do have more seniors who will be falling under this. And and when you have type 1 diabetes, your body stops making insulin. So all you can do is take insulin by injection or through using an insulin pump. With type 2 diabetes, probably 40 to 60% of people will end up on insulin at some point in their lives. So you can see that's a a large percentage of people, um, especially our senior population, who will be affected positively by this um, Medicare insulin cap. I wanted to go into that. Uh, This week, the U.S. Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Part of that includes um, setting a cap on insulin prices for seniors on Medicare to just $35. What do you think that's going to mean for patients in Mississippi? Oh, it's going to help a lot. Um, Our calls, we do assist people with insulin as part of our emergency assistance um, helping hands program. And I cannot tell you the number of seniors who will start calling in, say, March, April, May, who are already in the donut hole where, you know, they've used up, I guess, all that Medicare will provide for them and that they have to, unless they have Medigap coverage, they have to pay for their prescriptions in full. 
Um, now, with diabetes, you often have some comorbid conditions such as heart disease. You can have high blood pressure. Um, you can have rhythm problems with your heart. You also can ha- be at risk for kidney disease. And so a lot of the patients are also taking, you know, blood pressure medication, um, maybe something for an arrhythmia, a cardiac arrhythmia where their heart doesn't beat um you know, like it should, and they'll hit that donut hole very quickly. So at least having a cap on the insulin is going to help them out because they may be able to have other medicines covered. And they do have that 2000 out-of-pocket that this new bill covers. Um, you know, it, they're not going to pay more than 2000 a year for it. So it's going to help out a lot. Um, it, you know, we'll we'll see how it how it works. Uh, we we do we've looked. I've been reading about it, and there are some caveats that people do need to check to make sure their insulin is, you know, covered um, by their plan. They may need to look at a different plan um, for their for their Medicare and different Part D coverage, but it looks. Right now, it looks very promising, like a lot of people will be helped by this program. How difficult is it for people to get insulin, and what are what prices are they paying to get it? Oh, gosh. it's um, Well, I mean, they, for the new insulin analogs um, that work more like how the body's insulin works, uh, you know, people with type 1 diabetes in particular really need to be using those for you know, the best result and best management of their blood sugar, they can run anywhere from 350 to $500 a vial or a prescription for it. And I just noticed um, at this point some of our kids with diabetes who have turned 18 and 19, um, who I, I know are on Medicaid, for instance, um, as soon as you turn 19 in Mississippi, you're no longer eligible for Medicaid, and we've been helping parents who are scurrying around trying to find some kind of coverage for their child because, uh, as you can imagine, to be eligible for Medicaid, you're falling in a certain socioeconomic, um, you know, parameter, and there's no way you you could pay for these insulins for your child. Um, you know, some kids are fortunate enough to be able to be put on their parents' insurance till they're 26, but we do have a lot of kids whose parents are self-pay and don't have insurance, and we're coaching them to go through um, taking a look at healthcare.gov to see what they could be covered under. Because if you think about it, 18, 19 years old, you're starting college, and you need to be in good um, control of your blood sugar so that you're able to learn and so you can finish college and be healthy and and get um, a job with benefits. Um, so we would really like to see Medicaid expanded, you know, here in Mississippi. But I do feel at least encouraged that at least our seniors who, you know, have called us up and and are using some of the insulin analogs um, or taking some other medicine for their diabetes, at least, you know, will have some kind of cap on the on the amount that they have to pay because they're older, they're generally on a, on a fixed income, and I don't know how they do it. Um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a case of the the pharmaceuticals of the insulin getting more and more expensive and you just wonder how these people are going to survive. U.S. Congress was considering a measure in this that would have expanded this coverage to more people that have private insurance, or this, this sorry, this cap on insulin costs. Yeah. But that did that failed. Um, I yeah. would like to note that Mississippi's Cindy Hyde Smith did vote to keep that exactly. in. Exactly. Um, was a, that was a wonderful thing to know that she voted for, but unfortunately, um, other. Mississippi senators did not vote for it, which is a shame, because if you look at Mississippi demographics, we're the poorest state in the country. We're also one of the top states for diabetes, and uh, it's it's hurting the constituents. It's hurting the people of our state when you don't have, you know, affordable insulin. Another part of the uh Inflation Reduction Act was addressing other drug costs. You, mean, you mentioned this earlier. According to the American Diabetes Association, around $1 of every $3 spent on prescription drugs is by a patient with diabetes. Yeah. What do you think this you know, process that will begin to negotiate prices for uh, Medicare patients, what do you think this can look like over the next few years, and how do you think I, it's going to help? I hope and pray that it's going to help bring down some of the costs. We have a lot of people that call us up that say, well, my doctor put me on this particular drug, but it's not covered by my Medicare plan, and maybe the negotiation for prices will help drive prices down to where we will see the drug formularies include more pharmaceutical, uh, you know, prescriptions and uh, and help people out. Um, you know, again, with, with diabetes, you're at an increased risk for stroke and heart attack, and some people need to be on some of the drugs such as Eliquis or some of the other, um, you know, uh, things to prevent clotting, to, to help with cardiac rhythm and, and so on. And a lot of the new, you know, first-line drugs often can be very expensive. So, you know, hopefully combining that negotiation with caps for, um, you know, drugs in general for a year's worth of drugs at 2000, I guess it said, and um, for the catastrophic, uh, you know, they won't have to come up with the 5% for their medicines. That's going to help some people out. Can you tell us a little bit about your um, helping Hands program and what resources are available for Mississippians who yeah. won't be qualifying for these uh, these reduced rates but still need help. Sure, sure. We do everything from um, donate meters and test strips to patients. Um, we've helped them out mainly um, with insulin and some of the other um, injectables, um, the GLPs. Uh, there's special classes of, of medicines for people with type 2 diabetes, we've had some people donate, generously donate their extra insulin or extra um, medicines to the Diabetes Foundation. We work through their doctor and health care team and, and assist that way with them or cover a copay. Um, it's, unfortunately, it is only one time that we can do um, with the different medicines and things, but, you know, with the meters and strips, I mean, we help out statewide. Um, you know, a lot of the community health um, 
clinics such as uh, Jackson Hines Comprehensive or Coastal Family Health will send us a patient assistance form to send meter strips, information, lancets, and lancing device to patients. So we fill a lot of those every week. We also help with children who are newly diagnosed. There are a substantial number of children in Mississippi where the family does not have Medicaid. The Medicaid's lapsed because they've moved and didn't get the notification or they you know, they've lost private insurance during the pandemic because of parents losing their jobs. So we do emergency assistance for those children too. Irena McLean is Associate Director of the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. Irena, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, we continue our comprehensive look at the state's welfare fraud scandal and how the current governor is connected to questionable spending. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The initial fallout from the welfare scandal was limited. Six people were charged and arrested. All of them had arguably close ties to the Department of Human Services and Director John Davis, who was among the six charged. The criminal element of the alleged fraud was centered on Nancy New and her son, Zach, who operated New Learning Resources. The news have since pleaded guilty to state and federal charges, but those initial indictments have spiraled into additional civil suits and investigations that have implicated a former governor and the current one along with a slew of connected individuals. In part two of our conversation with Mississippi Today investigative reporter Anna Wolf, we start with the status of ongoing federal investigations and look at where her most recent reporting has led her. They've been really quiet. I don't think that, um, I don't think they've let anything go as ter- in terms of what they're doing, but Nancy New did receive a pretty generous plea deal back in April after our series published that suggests to me that um, I don't know how she would have gotten a a deal like that if prosecutors weren't interested in going higher up. Because she pled guilty to federal and state charges for um, bribery and embezzlement and is being promised no time or some time. So her fe- the federal charges that she pled guilty to have nothing to do with the welfare case. That is a separate case about um, fraud of public education dollars. Uh, now, she did plead guilty to the state charges that deal with the embezzlement um, of welfare funds or the you know defrauding of the welfare department. Um, and the deal that she got from the state essentially says that she won't spend any time in state prison. And so if she receives time in the federal case, that's essentially what she'll serve. She won't serve additional time for the welfare charges. What about Zach? Same deal. 
Her attorney has re- has subpoenaed Bryant. What is that subpoena about? Um, I think that the news defense um, is strengthened by the fact that the governor of the state at the time, Phil Bryant, was directing them to make these purchases. And so, you know, the volleyball stadium, for example, is part of Zach News' uh, plea agreement that he signed. He he pled guilty to charges related to paying that money to build that volleyball stadium. And so now they're requesting communication relative to the governor, um, I think, because that is a strong defense. E- even if it's not getting them off of criminal charges, it's a strong defense in the civil case to say, we may have done this. We may not have done everything right, but look who else is involved and look who else is responsible as well. So you just came up with an article that brings up the current governor, Governor Tate Reeves. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So the civil suit that was filed in May and things really heated up in the civil suit in July is really uh, the public's best opportunity to learn what happened because, you know, the criminal cases, they're probably not going to go to trial. There's not a lot of public documentation attached to them. The civil suit is really where I think the public is expecting to receive answers. And Tate Reeves has recently sort of made lukewarm statements about his support for the civil suit. He says that it shouldn't um, or, you know, he, he kind of questions why it's taking place before the criminal charges are completed, um, the criminal cases are completed. And, uh, you know, we're kind of wondering, why are you jumping in now, right? Why are you placing yourself in the middle of this and 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 telling the public that you are calling the shots in this case? You'd think that he'd want to stay away from it, you know, as far as possible from it. Um, and so we started kind of looking at, well... What does Tate Reeves have have to lose here in this civil suit? You know, who might he have connections uh, with, you know, in terms of the defendants in the civil suit? And, you know, the USM volleyball stadium is a good example of where he has many campaign donors who um, sit on that athletic board down there. But also he his personal trainer, Paul Lacoste, is a defendant in this case. And not only is this person his personal trainer... But he had meetings with Paul Lacoste and the welfare director in 2019 uh, related to this project that they were putting welfare money into. It was a fitness. <laughs> was that before he was governor? He was lieutenant governor. He was governor lieutenant then. governor at the time, right. And, you know, he, as lieutenant governor, had great control over the state budget. And so, you know, John Davis was answering to the governor, Phil Bryant at the time, but he was also trying to, you know, stay in good with lawmakers who controlled his budget, right? His state, the state portion of his budget. And so two days after he met with Tate Reeves and Paul Lacoste, he directed his deputy to find the money for Paul Lacoste's project. And that expenditure is now a subject of the civil suit. What did Lacoste want the money for? So he he has been putting on these boot camp style fitness programs for a long time. And he received $1.3 million in welfare money over less than a year's time to put these camps on. And that's an extraordinary amount of money. You know, I think that if the welfare department had paid him 
a sort of market rate for these programs, it wouldn't be the story that it is. But did the programs deal with helping low-income people? That's a good question. Um, I think that there there was no eligibility requirements for these programs. So they certainly served wealthy people as well as, you know, people who didn't have the money to pay for the program. Were these exercises, exercise classes that were open to the public that he set up at different locations? Yes, they were. So the the program under the welfare department um, took place in Pascagoula, Brookhaven, and Greenville. And they were open to the public. And so, you know, that's a good piece of Holocaust defense is we did put these camps on. We didn't violate our contract because we did do the work. But he also paid himself over $300,000 to do this work. Was there any oversight in terms of how much he made? Was there a contract at all? The contract didn't have um, stipulations like that, I don't think. Um, but that was all handled by the private nonprofit. So that that was not a public contract. So the private nonprofit was Nancy New. That's right. Okay, so let me get this straight. So Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves told John Davis, and John Davis told his deputy director to make sure that Lacoste gets that $1.3 million to create these programs. That's what the messages suggest when John Davis is calling this project the lieutenant governor's fitness issue and says that the lieutenant governor is very supportive of what we are doing. On the face of it, what's wrong with that? Well, this money uh, was supposed to be used for serving disadvantaged people. Um, helping if they them... were open to disadvantaged people. Well, I'm not sure that a fitness program satisfies the, the TANF purposes in general. Um, you know, this is a program, TANF, that is supposed to help people get jobs, supposed to help them uh, with ec- economic mobility. But, I mean, your point is well taken that... Um, the program itself, you know, may have been a legal expenditure if it weren't for the fact that John Davis was steering the money to them. So, and there was no RFP or That's anything. right. There was never an RFP. There was never a fair bidding process for these grants. It was John Davis gets to decide whoever he wants to give the money to, which means that politicians get to decide whoever gets the money because they can just tell John Davis who to pay. And I noticed in the article... Uh, Lacoste assured uh, different political folks that um, they would make sure that he got the money. He would tell them to make sure that he got the money. Right. You know, it's kind of an offhand quip like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to work these guys really hard in our workout if they don't give you the budget that you want. But he also said that Tate Reeves and another lawmaker told him that we're taking care of John. So you just see how even if let's say that none of this stuff actually came to fruition. So uh, let's say that are these communications, I won't say criminal, but do they suggest impropriety? Well, I think that even if, you know, let's say that Paul Lacoste didn't have any influence over these lawmakers. They, he didn't change their behavior at all. He didn't in, influence their actions or John Davis's, that the communications really reflect how the men that run this state interact with each other. 
And I think that's a story in itself. I think to peel back the curtain and see how these men interact and the the mentality that they have and um, sort of the flippant, you know, nature, I think that that's illustrated in the messages. Anna Wolf is a reporter with Mississippi Today in our final installment tomorrow. Everything we're talking about is these are attempts to find out who is responsible, right? So why is it that in all of these attempts, in the forensic audit, the the state's audit, you know, the civil suit, in all of these attempts, why am I the only one who has put that on paper? The audits, what they say, and what is still being uncovered. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.